Well, listen, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we uh, turn our attention this morning to, to God's Word, okay? Our Father, we thank you so much that we can be, we get to be in this family of God that you have created. And I especially thank you for this family here at New Life, Lord. What uh, wonderful people you have brought to us. Thank you for those who have uh, come into our fellowship today. Lord, we pray now that you would uh, turn our attention and set our hearts on the things that matter most. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you're going to want to reach into your worship folder and pull out the little study outline so that you can, want, you can follow along with me this morning. You know, perhaps the most famous, most beloved, most quoted verse in the whole entire Bible might be John 3.16. John 3.16. Let's say it out loud together, this, this wonderful verse. Ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the Bible, the whole Bible, in a nutshell. Max Lucado refers to it as the Hope Diamond of Scripture, and Anne Graham Lotz wrote this, John 3.16 is the north star of the Bible. If you align your life with it, you will find your way home. And she was right. John 3.16. Now, if you're my age or older, do you remember that crazy guy back in the day with the hair? Remember that guy? I think his name was Rockin' Rollin', and uh, I just remember back in the late 70s and early 80s, he was like this omnipresent guy. He was at every sporting event on television, it seemed. And uh, I remember, you know, I'd be watching a football game, and they'd line up to kick a field goal. And sure enough, there behind the goalpost was this guy with this wild Afro thing holding up the John 3.16 sign. And uh, I, I always wondered, does this guy have a job? I mean, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, you know. I've later found that he's in prison, actually, so things must have went south for him at some point in time. But I remember watching, uh, one time, watching the game, and he was there with his John 3.16 sign, and the commentator broke in and said, said well, there's, there's that guy with that sign again. I, I wonder what that John 3.16 means. And the other commentator said, well, I'm not sure, but I, I think it might be something from the Bible. But you know what? I believe everybody needs to know what John 3.16 means. If you grew up in church like I did, it's likely that as a little kid you were encouraged to memorize John 3.16 so that you could recite it from heart. But even if that was the case, I, I want to ask you, do, do you really know what it means? These next several weeks, I want to unpack the glorious meaning of this great verse and the two verses that follow it and, and explain it. And if you've never memorized John 3, 16, it's my hope and prayer that during the course of the, these next couple of weeks you will. You'll commit it to memory during this series. Let's say it together again. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not hard to see, is it, why this verse is so memorized and quoted and loved? It's a wonderful declaration from the lips of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior himself. And if his declaration in John 3.16 is true, I believe it changes everything. 
If John 3.16 is true, then it should impact how you'll use the internet tonight, how you relate to your boss tomorrow or your teacher, how you parent your children, how you treat your spouse, what you do in your leisure time, even what you do with your hard-earned money. I believe the meaning of John 3.16 is so profound and so pervasive that it should affect everything about your life. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that John 3.16 is this infantile nursery school truth. What is contained in this one verse are huge, gigantic concepts. Concepts that shape history. These are weighty, heavy, mind-bending, graduate-level, mountain-peak truths. And I see nine massive realities in this one verse. Do you see them? God, love, world, gave, son, whoever believes, perish, life. Nothing is more important for your life today than this. Whatever you walked in the room with this morning, whatever you were thinking about when you came in, please push it out of your mind right now so you can give your full, undivided attention to these eternity-altering truths. I'm going to say a few things about each one of these, except for the second one, love, which is so important and so integral to the meaning of this verse. I'm going to devote all of next week's sermon to that, but we'll touch on all the others, so... Here we go. You ready? For God. God. There's no reason to think that Jesus means any other God here than the God of the Old Testament, the God that he believed in, that he knew. The deity that Jesus had been taught about and believed in is the creator and sustainer of the whole world, yes? He's the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jewish people, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He's the God of Moses and Joshua and King David and Solomon. That's the God that Jesus was referring to here. And we know that that God was not just a mere force, but a person. A person who loves and hates, who grieves and who rejoices, who thinks and wills and acts. And this personal God is a moral being, isn't he? That is, he deals with us in terms of good and evil and right and wrong. And he does that because he himself is unceasingly righteous in his own character. That means he always and only loves what is good and he hates what is evil. As a Bible college student, I remember hearing Francis Schaeffer speak and I heard him describe God this way. He said, He is the infinite personal God to whom everything is not the same. He does not and cannot view your every action or your every thought equally. When I treat my wife with disrespect or with disdain, God does not view that the same as when I treat her with gentleness and love. He is a moral being and he evaluates our activities according to a moral code, and that code flows from his very nature. 
And so this God, the God that Jesus was speaking of, always and only does what is right because by nature he defines right, right? He defines rightness. What is right is what accords with God's nature and God's worth and God's law and God's thinking. Everything else is evil. And so this God that Jesus believed in is by nature a a lawgiver and a judge who must judge all that is evil in in his creation. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. To fail to punish sin would make God unrighteous, unjust. And for Jesus, that notion would be unthinkable. Since all of us were made by this God, the Bible says that our first and highest duty as human beings is to love him, to thank him, to honor him, Romans 121. However, we know that we have all failed to do that to the extent that he deserves, and that is why John 3.16 ought to be so precious to each and every one of us, because it describes how God is acting to rescue us from our precarious situation. God so loved. We'll explore this in depth next weekend, but for now, just know that that word, God so loved, is translated from the Greek word agape. You've heard of this word, right? Agape love. Agape describes a a, a, a foreign, otherworldly kind of love that does not by nature fill the hearts of human beings, but does fill the heart of God and compels him to act in the way that he does. God loved world. The most common meaning in the book of John for this word world, it's not the planet that we live on, it's not earth, it's not mountains and seas and rivers and trees and animals, not that world. In the book of John, it most often refers to the world of fallen humanity. The mass of sinful people who populate the globe. For example, in John 7, 7, Jesus told his disciples, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Referring to the world of sinful, fallen people who don't love God, and as a result, their works are evil. The world is the great mass of fallen humanity that needs salvation. The great ocean of perishing sinners from which the whoevers are drawn and rescued. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. It's a great word, isn't it? He gave. God gave the Holy One gave. The righteous judge, out of the agape love in his heart, gave a gift to the world of sinners. Let me say two things about this. First, this giving was a sending. We know that from the next verse, verse 17, which says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So do you see that God's Giving is a sending. Do you see that? Now, this past Wednesday night, I got to talk right over in a room over here to our Sparkies, who are, I think, little, what, seven, eight-year-olds? Yeah, in that range. Bunch of them. And uh, 
I want to tell you something. Your kids are really smart. <laughs> I mean, they, they are stunningly smart. In fact, I would say it a different way. Your kids are soaked in the gospel. I was stunned and surprised by how much they get. Now, my assigned verse in talking to the Sparkies on Wednesday was 1 John 4, 12, which says, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So I read that verse, and then I looked at your seven and eight-year-olds, and I asked them this question. Who sent who to be what, for whom, and why? And they did not hesitate. Hands shot up all over the room. They knew the answers. They said, well, Pastor Steve, God the Father sent his son Jesus to earth to save people who needed saving because of their sins. And I said, you got it. <laughs> you got it. Do you know how many people don't understand that? Your children know what Christmas is really all about. So nice work, parents and children's ministry volunteers. God gave means that God sent his gift from heaven down to earth. His giving involved a sending, but there's something else. His giving included a dying, didn't it? Later on in his life, Jesus would say this in John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That tells me that the Father's purpose in sending Jesus was so that he might lay down his life. The giving of the gift had as its aim a cross and a cold, dark tomb. So when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave, it means that God sent His Son to earth on a mission to die. And when you think about it, that's mind-boggling. I mean, would you ever say to your son, Hey, son, there's something I want you to do for me. I have some enemies, and they deserve to perish. But I want you to go and perish in their place so that they can have life. Whatever else you think in your mind about God or what he's like, think that. Make sure you know that he's a God like that. God loved, world, gave, son. He gave his only begotten son. The gift that God gave that he sent down from heaven was his son. Now, many people stumble over this, especially many Muslims, stumble over this notion that God has a son. And I struggled, honestly, the other night with the Sparkies, uh, trying to explain to them how God has a son, because I knew their immediate thought would be that Jesus must have had a mommy and a daddy who got together and do what mommies and daddies do that produces a little baby that is brought home from the hospital, like it works with every other little child that's born into a family. But Joseph had no sexual union with Mary. Neither did God come down from heaven and have sex with Mary to produce a son, as some people are contending. That's a myth. But the key to understanding Jesus' sonship 
is found in that little phrase, only begotten. God gave his only begotten son. And in the original language, which is Greek, it's a very interesting word. It's the word monogenes, monogenes. That same word is used in Hebrews 11 of Isaac. Another miracle son calls Isaac the monogenes, the only begotten of Abraham, even though Abraham had another son. The word monogenes means unique or one of a kind, the uniquely begotten one of a kind son. Isaac was unique in that he was conceived by parents whose ability to conceive was long gone, and Jesus was a one of a kind son also in several ways. Think about it. Jesus was conceived apart from having an earthly father. That's unique. Jesus lived in heaven before he was conceived on the earth. No other son can claim that. Jesus actually has no real birthday, no existential beginning. He has always existed. That's unique. And Jesus is the son of God in a way that no one else can say they are a son of God. B.F. Westcott wrote this, Christ is the one and only Son, the one to whom that title belongs in a sense that is completely unique as distinguished from others that are called sons of God. Jesus has always had a special, unique relationship with the Father that no one else has, Father and Son. So he is a son in a special and unique sense. So John 3.16 tells us that God the Father sent a gift to the world and that gift was a living, eternal being. Not an angel, not a mere mortal, but a son, his son, the second member of the Holy Trinity. So somewhere in the councils of eternity past, the Father asked the Son to go, and the Son said, I'll go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, Whoever. Now, do you know what that word means in the original Greek language? It's very deep. It means whoever. <laughs> Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Anyone, anyone, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Democrat, Republican, Prodigal, Pharisee, gay, straight, high IQ, low IQ, whoever. There is no restriction. There is no qualifying phrase. Aren't you glad of that? The offer is made to whoever. Praise God. There is no one outside the reach of God's gift. You could put your name in place of that word, whoever. I have. Many have. Last weekend, some in this room did. If you're already a Christian, I imagine there's someone else's name you would like to put in that place. A grandpa, a grandma, a mom or dad. A son or a daughter, a brother, a sister, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, your prayer is, oh Lord, may they be one of the whoever's that believes. 
God's gift is freely offered to all with no respect of persons. That whoever believes, ah, there's a condition. The whoever's must believe. You know, that tells us a couple of things. It tells us that sadly not everyone will benefit from God's gift. Not everyone will gain the full benefit of Jesus laying down his life. Some will believe, but the rest, unbelievers, it says, will perish, will miss eternal life. That's sobering, isn't it? Now this word believe here, I looked it up, it means to to embrace something as being true, and when the object of that belief is a person, it means to trust them to be what they say and to do what they promise. So you can think of it this way. This last summer, I've told you this before, my wife and I took a little trip up to Niagara Falls. And, uh, you know, it was beautiful. Just the the scenery, the vista is just amazing to to look at and the the thunderous roar of the the falls and all of that. And, um, oh, there she is. She's going to kill me for showing that picture. (laughs) I just think she looks so cute. And we did the Maid of the Mist thing, and, and you've done that, right? A lot of you. But you know, there they have an IMAX theater, and they show this little video that's about the, uh, the daredevil stunts that people have done throughout the years at Niagara Falls. So you, you hear about the lady, you know, the middle-aged lady who went over in a barrel and all these things. But the one that stood out to me is the one I've, I've heard about before. It's about the great Charles Blondin, who back in the day, back in the mid-1800s, he was a a widely renowned tightrope walker, and he decided that what he was going to do to make some money is string a tightrope across the Niagara Gorge, 1,300 feet, and walk across it and invite people to come. And he did that on July 15, 1859, charged 25 cents, like a quarter, for people to come and view this, and if they wanted a a chair with a back on it, it was another quarter. I mean, outrageous, right? So a lot of big hype building up to this event. The day arrives, he shows up, 25,000 people show up, some on the American side, some on the Canadian side. The tightrope is strung across that gorge, and the great blonde, as he was called, starts his walk across and manages to get all the way across and all the way back without, there was no safety net underneath, so fortunately without falling into the roiling currents down below. And then he got a wheelbarrow, and he went across all the way and came back the whole way. And when he got back, he looked at the crowd and said, how many of you believe that I could take a human being in this wheelbarrow across on the tightrope and back? And they're like, we believe, we believe. And he says, okay, who's first? (laughs) That is belief. Would you agree? It's one thing to be in the crowd and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I I think you can do that. It's another thing to get yourself in that wheelbarrow. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) I hope he can do what he said he can do. That's the belief. Whoever believes in him, that's the belief he's talking about. I'm talking about Jesus now. 
fully, totally entrusting your whole entire life to this person. It's further amplified by the little word in, whoever believes in. You know what? In the original language, it's not in, it's into. That's deep. There's some richness there. Whoever believes into him. That tells me this is way, way, way more than just, you know, in your mind saying, oh yeah, I believe those facts, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died and rose from the dead and all that stuff. This is way more than that, okay? This is belief, this is immersion into Christ. This is union, this is relational. It's completely placing your whole life into somebody else's hands. It's getting in the wheelbarrow. And saying, if you can't do what you promised you'd do, I'm, I'm doomed. What does John 3.16 tell us will be the fate of those who do not do that, who do not believe? Whoever believes in him will not perish. So those who do not believe in him will perish. What's most important to see here is that perish is set in contrast to what? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. So if you perish, you don't have everlasting life. And if you have everlasting life, you will not perish. I don't see a third option, do you? Non-believers will perish. Believers will have eternal life. If there is an in-between holding tank kind of place where you're suspended in limbo for a while, it's not mentioned here. What does it mean to perish? I see a couple of things. First, because perishing is contrasted with eternal life, I take it that perishing is eternal. You know, when when someone dies, it's not extinction. It's not fade to black. It's not the end. It's not ceasing to exist. Everyone, according to the scriptures, will exist forever, but everyone will not exist forever in the same way in the same condition, in the same surroundings. Perishing is eternal dying. This notion of perishing, it's further explained in this same chapter in verse 18 and verse 36. In John 3, in verse 18 says this, Jesus speaking, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So failing to believe results in perishing, which is equivalent to being condemned. Do you see that? But now you're thinking, wait a second, but verse 17 said that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. How do you you reconcile this? Very easily. The world was already condemned. Jesus didn't need to come in as judge and condemn the world. The world was already condemned. God had already rendered his verdict on our race. And the verdict was what? Guilty. You read about it in Romans 3. Guilty on a thousand counts of failing to honor our creator God as he deserves. All of our race is charged with legal guilt before God and is therefore condemned to perish in eternal death. God's judicial wrath already rests on all of humanity. Let the weight of that reality hit your heart this morning. 
That's why verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what does it say? Remains on him. Remains. It was already there. And Jesus, the Son of God, who would know such things, was declaring that unbelieving, condemned people will not be able ever to get out from under God's wrath. John Piper says, There is nothing you can imagine worse than having the omnipotent God oppose you with righteous wrath forever. Which is what perishing means. Do you see more clearly now why I said there is no more important thing for you to give your attention to than this? Nothing is more important for you than this. I am so grateful that there's not a period here. will not perish, but have everlasting life. Life. That is good news. Let's say this again, the whole verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Life. Everlasting life. Now, as I said earlier, this does not simply mean that believers live forever. Everyone will live forever. It refers to a particular kind of life that happens to go on forever. Eternal kind of life. This is God's life. It is indestructible, it is inexhaustible, and according to John 3.36, it's something that a believer receives now, not when you die. I don't know what, you, what you've been taught, but it's not like if you're a Christian that you know, you get eternal life when you die. No. He who has the Son has, present tense, life. You get this life now. This is life with God. This is life of loving God and treasuring God and relating to God and knowing God. That's what Jesus said in his prayer. This is eternal life, that they might know you, know you, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. It's the kind of life that loves God now, that rejoices, finds joy in God now. And then when a believer does die and leaves this earthbound life to go be with their Savior, from that precious moment on, everything that was capping off that joy while they were here, holding it down, suppressing it, tainting it, distracting them from it, all of that in an instant gets removed and they experience the fullness of God's joy in His presence. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little envious of some of our church family members who recently have gone home to pure joy with Jesus. Don, Sue, Ron, Yes, it hurts. We, we grieve for our loss, don't we? But you need to understand something. They wouldn't come back if they could. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Trade that in for this? They already possessed eternal life while they were here with us. Because each of them, I can attest, were true believers in Jesus Christ. But now completely free from sin, completely free from those bodies that were declining and, and holding them back, 
in their later years, free from corruption and pain and anger and frustration. Now they're leaping and dancing and praising God and laughing and loving like they never were able to do here because they're completely free the first time in their existence. Eternally joyful. Their faith has become sight and they now see Jesus for everything they believed him to be while they were here and even more because now they see him as he is. Everlasting life. John 6.63 says that it's the Holy Spirit who gives this life. It's the Holy Spirit who gives it. 1 John 5.11 declares this life is in the Son. So in our believing, the Holy Spirit unites us with the one who has life in himself and we then participate in his life through our union with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, present tense, everlasting life. We did miss something, didn't we? We skipped right over God's motive in offering this gift, that which is in his heart that compels him to offer this gift to the world. It's, it's so huge, it's so massive, it's so expansive, it's so deep and fathomless that we're going to devote all of next week's sermon to understanding God's love. And I can tell you now, we won't get to understand it fully. It's too deep. I'm going to wrap up our time today with two questions that I think beg to be asked now that we hopefully have a better understanding of John 3.16. Here's the first one. Has there ever been a time in your life when you understood these amazing realities and as a result, you felt compelled to entrust your whole life to Jesus? Has there ever been a time? I mean, you got in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) You said, I'm done trusting in myself, what I can do. There's only one who can make it across, save me from the wrath of God churning up underneath me? Has that ever gotten personal for you? you, Instead of God so loved the world, has it ever come down into your heart, God loves me? Has that ever happened? And not just that he died for the, the sins of the world, but that he died for your idolatry and your pride and your hatred and your lust and your ungratefulness and your self absorption. Has it ever landed on your heart like that? Has it ever gotten like personal for you and you would say, yes, there was a time and a place when I believed all in belief. When I believed into Jesus and became united with him. Has that ever happened at some time in the past? Or for you, is that really happening today? I mean, maybe for you, it's dawning on you right now. The first time you've really grasped that God's free but costly gift wasn't just for the whole world, but for you. And you're receiving it today. If so, in a few moments, 
I'm going to ask you to respond. If it's today for you, there's going to be people up here praying for others, but during that prayer time, I'm going to ask you to come up and talk with one of our prayer partners who will be on each one of these sides and, and walk up to them and say, you know what? I'm confessing my belief in Jesus Christ today. And they will pray for you. And then I urge you to say to them, and I want to be baptized as soon as I possibly can so that what's in my heart goes public and I can publicly identify with Jesus. My second question is this. Who do you know and love that doesn't yet believe this good news? There's someone, isn't there? It's an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, a parent, children, friend, siblings. There's a loved one that you're very concerned for who needs to hear John 3.16 and believe it. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come and kneel or stand and pray that God would open up their heart and open their spiritual eyes and awaken them from spiritual death so that they can see Jesus for who he really is and put their trust in him. It's Christmas season. Families will be getting together. You might have the opportunity to have a conversation with him. I put some gospel pamphlets up here if you want to take one, and they look like this, and maybe God will open up a conversation. Hey, hey, Uncle Bill, I've been meaning to talk with you about something, and I'm wondering if, you know, if you'd humor me. Let me just, let me just talk to you about something that's, that's really on my heart and it's so important. In fact, there's really nothing more important. Would that be okay? And walk through the gospel with him. There's somebody on your heart that doesn't know Jesus yet, hasn't believed in him yet, and as a result, if something doesn't change, if God doesn't intervene, they're going to perish. So nothing's more important than this. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the message of John 3, 16. Thank you for being a God who, although holy and righteous and just and a judge and a lawgiver, thank you for having the agape love in your heart that prompted you to send your son so that whoever believes, whoever believes, no one is outside the scope of your gift of love, whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. I pray that would happen for someone in this room today who doesn't yet know you. And Lord, we have people we love who don't know you, and we're worried about them, we're concerned for them, we pray for them. You know I felt prompted to just ask our people to come and, and once again lift up their loved ones to you, that maybe, perhaps, this Christmas season might be the time when they are awakened and their eyes are opened. So, Jesus, I say thank you. So let's do that, church, these next few moments. If you, there's someone on your heart who doesn't yet believe, come, kneel, stand. Maybe you've lifted them up a thousand times. Lift them up again to Christ. As long as they have breath in their lungs, it's not too late, amen? So come, let's lift our loved ones up to the Lord.